0: Let's pray together. Oh Father, we thank You that You, as we just sang, lead us always and You lead us by interceding for us through Your, through your Son <clears throat> as He prays for us, as He ministers to us before You at Your throne. So, Lord, we praise You that 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 is the relationship that we have with You, that You are listening to the prayers and the petitions of Your Son, and You are loving us. And Lord, as we come to Your Word now to think about the love of God, we pray that You would also, not only in our midst, but in Your churches around the globe and around this community, that You would... You would display Your love by opening blind eyes to understand and to to comprehend spiritual truth for the first time that You would draw men to Yourself through the love of Your Son who is a Savior from Your wrath, O God, against sin. Lord, we pray for believers in this country and in other countries as we've prayed for the Congo and we pray for Russia and we pray for the Ukraine. Lord, we pray for believers there that you would cause them to be steadfast and immovable. Lord, that they would be abounding in your work. Part of that is declaring who you are to a lost and dying world around them. Your love and your wrath, your justice and your mercy displayed through your Son. Lord, we pray for the salvation of the president of Russia, and we pray for the salvation of the president of Ukraine. Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would open their blind eyes to the beauties of Christ, that you would do what only you can do, that you would draw them to their knees, and that you would work a work of regeneration. Whether terrorists or civilians like us, Lord, we, we are those like those evil men in the world doing evil acts who need your transforming work. And so we pray that you would do it for your glory. We pray that you would protect innocent lives and that you would defend the innocent for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, if you have your Bibles, turn in them uh, with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we will be looking at, primarily verses 34 through 39 this morning, as we consider the perfection of God's love. Now there's many passages that we could look to this morning uh, to think about the love of God, but as we've been for some weeks now looking at the book of Romans, it's fitting that we think about. God's love in the book of Romans as well. John just read this passage and, so, uh, and, and did it so well and summed it up and brought us up to the point where we are now in this passage for this morning, and so we will spend our time delighting in the love of God from this text this morning and when we worship God for his various attributes there are many attributes of God that we could explore in fact we're we'll have done it for months and months now by the end of our, our series in the attributes of God it's important to remember that though we are adoring at this moment we're zeroing in on one particular facet of of the diamond as it were uh, dare we uh, uh, minimize God down in, into a diamond, but if, but if we think of viewing the attributes of God as, as viewing the various facets of a diamond, we, we view each individual facet of that diamond in relation to the other facets. Or, or as we think about God's attributes, we always view one particular attribute in relation to the others. And just like you can't really appreciate the radiance of one facet of a diamond without the others letting in light to make that one sparkle, God's love is inseparably connected to His other attributes, His wrath, His kindness, His jealousy, His faithfulness, His holiness, His grace as we've seen. And so it is with the love of God. We cannot separate God's love from all of these other attributes. And I believe that as we walk through this attribute in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 8 in particular, that you will see how the love of God is inseparably connected and draws our attention to these glorious other attributes. Well, there was a missionary born in 1794, named Alan Gardner. He was a missionary in, in several places, but uh, notably on the island of Patagonia. Maybe you've heard of this place. It's where Charles Darwin did some of his research. And Charles Darwin uh, was doing his work there, and in his first encounter of the people on Patagonia He found them despicable. Uh, they They were awful people from his perspective. They were cruel. They were brutal. But when he came back later after Alan Gardner, this Christian missionary, had been there, he found a vast difference in the lives of the people in the community there. Now, that's not just to say that missionaries are are kind of just community activists, but they are preachers of the gospel that is able to transform the very daily lives of people as they are transformed by the gospel. In fact, that's exactly what was taking place in the lives of these people. But Alan, Alan Gardner, while he was there, experienced many physical difficulties Hardships throughout his service to the Savior. Just a brutal ministry life. But despite all of his troubles, he said in one of his journal entries, he said, while God gives me strength, failure will not daunt me. You think about missions in the late 1700s and the 1800s. Failure was just around the corner. Disease Uh, cannibals, enemies of the gospel, who weren't just wanting to debate you on the steps of a college university but wanted to throw a spear through your chest. Failure was always looming in that sense. But in 1851, at the age of 57, Alan Gardner died. He died of disease and starvation while serving on on the island of Pitkin, Picton at the southern tip of of South America. And when his body was found, his diary was laying nearby. I believe, if I remember the, the story I was reading correctly, they found him under a boat that he was getting shelter from the sun by. As he was dying there, he recorded his, his last words. And it bore the record of hunger, and, and extreme hunger and thirst, wounds that had been inflicted upon him, and loneliness. One of the most common struggles of missionaries. But the last entry in his little book showed the struggle of his shaking hand as he tried to write legibly... So that whoever read this and and just like us would read it in the future would know exactly where his heart lie in his dying moments. With shaking hand and a dying body, he wrote maybe some of the clearest words he ever penned. He says this. He said this, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. As he lay there dying from starvation and thirst and wounds and loneliness, he was overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Even as he experienced trials and persecutions and sufferings and calamity, He was overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. And and this is exactly where we find Paul in the chapter that we're looking at in Romans, chapter 8. The context of Romans 5-8 through for, for how Paul expresses this attribute of love is one of the inevitability of Christian suffering. The context is Paul dealing with not only the physical suffering that... Many of us will endure in some way, whether in the pains of, of a natural death or of a missionary martyr's death, but also with the internal struggle of assurance. Assurance. It's a struggle that most Christians, if not every Christian, encounters in their pilgrimage as a believer, even those who've been following Christ for many, many years, battle with the uncertainty about the reality of faith. The uncertainty about the reality of our faith and the genuineness of God's love for us. Sinclair, Sinclair Ferguson, Ferguson says, This is the problem of assurance. Quote, unquote, the problem of assurance. That we, we battle with, we struggle with uncertainty about the reality of our faith. We can look to the cross and and we say, okay, there's objective proof, but right now I'm struggling to believe that what what Jesus accomplished is effective today because of what I'm experiencing today. And this is the problem, the struggle of assurance and trouble and hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness, sword, danger, all give a, a terrible feel for the, the range of suffering, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verse 18, "The sufferings of this present time. There are sufferings in this present time that we are all experiencing in some way, And if you've not, you will. And Paul's life is evidence of that. No Christian, genuine believer escapes some suffering in this life as we walk with Christ. But what Paul wants us to remember, what we need to remember as those who are in Christ is this. And this is what we see in Romans chapter 8. I love how Christopher Ash put it. In his commentary in Romans 8, he says this, We need to remember, as those who are in Christ, that Romans 8 begins with no condemnation by the wrath of God. If we're in Christ, we are not condemned and under the wrath of God. It begins with no condemnation by the wrath of God and ends with no separation from the love of God in Christ. If we're in Christ, Romans 8 begins with no condemnation under the wrath of God, we are not condemned because Christ was condemned for us. And it ends with no separation from the love of God in Christ. The two key words in Romans 8, condemnation and separation. No condemnation, no separation. And this, brothers and sisters, this is the unbreakable tie that binds us to Him forever forever as we struggle through this life on our way to glory. And that inseparable, that unbreakable tie is the ongoing love of God toward His people. The ongoing, never-ending love of God experienced by His people until glory. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. But what is love? What is the love of God? As we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we see that God is love. We've, we've read that before. We've heard that in, in recent months. And, and the highest form of love described in the Bible or in the New Testament is the love captured in the word, you know it, agape, agape love. And without looking at a, a whole bunch of verses right now, let me just describe and kind of summarize these, this type of love for you. This type of love in the Scriptures, and in 1 John in particular, is a self-giving love. It is a self-sacrificing love. It is a love that lays itself down for the needs and the good of others. And this is the love that describes this attribute of God. God, in His love, is self-sacrificing. That's the quality of God's love. And it can be seen primarily through the gift of the Son by the Father. This is the self-sacrificial, this is the self-giving love of God. We see it in the self-sacrificial death of the Son for those who were at enmity with Him. Those who were enemies of God and have been made His friends. That is the ultimate expression of self-sacrifice. To go, as, go to the extent of loving your enemies, not only doing good to them, but making them your friend. Amazing. And in the new life that he freely and sovereignly gives to those who are dead in transgressions and sins, in that new life, they get to experience the ongoing Love of God. Not just the effects, but the present ministry of God's love toward us. And in Romans 8, we're going to see how. We're going to see how. It's fascinating to me that that love is so central to God's existence that the apostle can say that God is love. Now, what he's not saying is that love is God. God. John is not limiting God's essence to love. We know that God is is so many other things. But he's affirming that love is central to all that God is and all that He does. And so we know what love is. Love is self-sacrificing. It is self-giving. It's displayed in, in in the work of Christ at the cross. And we know that He loves us. But the question is, how? How do we know that? How do we, believers some 2,000 years after the death of Christ, know that he is love. How do we know that? How do we experience that? How does God love us currently? And, And as we battle, brothers and sisters, as we battle to believe in the finished work of Christ day by day, when the unfinished work of sanctification can be so discouraging, right? That's the battle. We, we, would, we affirm the, the finished work of Christ, but what we experience is daily struggle and discouragement over sin, over others' sin. Is it possible, in light of the finished work of Christ and, and the unfinished work of sanctification that can be so discouraging, is it possible, Paul is asking, and, and you have probably asked as well, is it possible that Satan or some circumstance or sin could possibly upend or overturn this act of love, this love of God for His people? We're going to answer that question. This morning we're going to see the glorious attribute of God's love and the greatest exercise of His love not only in the cross, but the other most glorious exercise of his love which is his sustaining work of those he has redeemed with his son's precious blood. The sustaining work of his love for those that he's purchased with his son's precious blood. And So let's turn our attention now to this unbreakable tie, the love of God that holds us from Romans eight thirty-four to 35. That unbreakable tie that holds us is God's love for us in Christ. And we're going to see three things this morning. And the first thing that we'll see is from our text that John read this morning. This verse is found in verses 34 and 35. The first aspect of God's love is this. Christ is loving us now. Christ is loving us now. And this is in response to the question... Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? We, we see the cross, but what about now? What about now? This is the grand kind of so what of Romans 5 through 8. Okay, great, Paul, we understand this doctrine of justification and, and sanctification. We've, we've been declared righteous, right. We, we know that Jesus, as, as the one who is our mediator, our advocate in the, in the courtroom of heaven, stands before the Father and says, He is not guilty. He is covered by my blood. He is now in me, and my righteousness now covers Him. Okay, so, so what? Well, the first so what, as it relates to God's love, is that Christ is loving us now. Look at verse 34 and 35. Paul asks the question as it relates to this justification, as it relates to those that God makes His own. He says, who is to condemn? Is there anyone who could condemn now this Christian, this Son of God, this Child of God? Is there anyone who is to condemn? To finally be able to remove the... the, Innocent verdict? Turn it around and condemn him? Paul says, no way. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Paul says, so who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Or tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness. Christ is loving us now. Now, to understand this, I came across an illustration that I think was helpful. A husband or a wife might say of, of their spouse who's gone to be with the Lord, passed on, nothing could separate me From our love. And that's how you feel. Of course, you feel that way. And it is right to feel that way. Nothing could separate me from their love. They have loved me. They loved me for 30, 40, 50 years. Nothing could separate that, that experience. What a sweet thing that that is. And they might mean that the the memory of their love will be sweet and and near and powerful all of their life, and it is. But that's not quite what, what Paul means in this example. When Paul says nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, Christ's love for us is not merely a memory that he recalls, that that he has to draw back on to remember, oh yeah, yeah, that's that's right, that's what I did. That's how I loved them. Nor is it merely a memory for us to say, that's right, Jesus loved me at the cross. Paul says nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. But here's the question, why can Paul say that in verse 35? That nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Now, if we're not careful, those kinds of things as, as we speak to one another and love and remind each other of these things can sometimes come across kind of sent, just sentimental or cheesy or kind of an emotional band-aid, kind of a throwaway statement when things are hard and we go, hey, you know, don't worry, brother, God works everything for good, for the good of those who love them. This is going to be all right. But not everything is all right all of the time. So so Paul isn't just laying on some kind of cheesy, sentimental, emotional band-aid when he says that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. But how does he know that? And the reason that Paul can say nothing will separate us from the love of Christ is because of the certain, concrete, objective, historical display of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Listen to what Romans, how Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this. Remember, Paul is saying, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who's who's going to attempt to do that and be successful? And the answer is no one. But listen to what Paul says about this historical display of God's love. He says this, but God, and I'm going to kind of change the tweak the translation a little bit, a little more wooden translation would be this, if you've turned there. But God is demonstrating. His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When you read that in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates His own love, well, that word, that verb demonstrate is in the present tense. It's in the indicative mood, which means it's a certain thing that happened. It absolutely happened. But it's active as well. It's a present, active verb. It is presently happening right now, even now, as Paul is writing it, after the death of Christ. And as we are reading this, after the death of Christ, God is demonstrating His own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the death of Christ, and moving on forward from the death of Christ, there is an ongoing experience of the effects of the death of Christ for sinners. That is effective even for Christians who are trusting in Christ 2,000 years after the fact. And so because Jesus is loving us now, even as Paul says in Romans 5, he is loving us. God is demonstrating his own love for us. The question is, well, how do we see that now? How do we see the ongoing display of God's Love for us in Christ at the cross. We'll turn back to Romans chapter 8 if, you've, if you're not still there. Paul says what Jesus is doing right now. He shows us how Jesus is loving us right now. Look at verse 34. The, sec, uh, the, the next phrase after, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But more than that, who was raised, who is right now at the right hand of God, and Hebrews tells us that He is seated, which means His work of redemption is finished. He is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. And we could say, right now, Christ is the one who died, who is at the right hand, and who is interceding for us right now, and so He is still loving us right now. And how is He doing that? By interceding. He's at the right hand of God and is therefore ruling. He is interceding for us, which means He is seeing to it that His finished his completed work of redemption, does in fact rescue and save us, not only in our initial regeneration, our initial belief and trust in Christ, but hour by hour, moment by moment, day by day, struggle by struggle, sin by sin, humiliating and humbling, confession of sin to one another, by confession of sin to one another. He is actively interceding for us, making sure that His work of redemption is intact and to bring us safely to our eternal home. And so His love is not just a memory like ours of a loved one, but it is a moment-by-moment Action by the all powerful, omnipotent, living Son of God, who is alive, who is resurrected, who is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father to bring us to everlasting joy and to everlasting rest, which is exactly what Paul knew the believers needed in Romans 8. They needed rest because tribulations were coming, they needed hope because suffering was coming. We need confidence, because persecutions are coming, the believers around the world who are suffering need to be reminded of the rest that Jesus has secured for them in His own blood that will be finally delivered when they are with Him for eternity. And so often we think of what Jesus did for us at the cross. And this is glorious. Who who could deny that this is a glorious aspect of our lives as christians but we must also remember how he is loving us even now and what is he doing even now he he sits at the right hand of the father and he is always living to make intercession for those whom he loves and those whom he saved and so what does this intercession look look like Well, when we are interceding for one another, when we are making prayers of supplication and petition on Sunday mornings as we pray for the needs of the body, we take our cue from Jesus who is praying for His people, for His own, before the Father. When the accuser accuses your heart that Jesus could never love you, Look at, look at your sin. Look at how often you fail. Look at, look at how many times you've fallen this week. you failed to love your family or your friends or you've been flaky again and you didn't pull through on that commitment. Whatever it is. You, you bombed in that opportunity to share the gospel with that unbeliever in your life. Jesus could never love you when the accuser accuses. Jesus is there to say, no, no, no. My blood was poured out for that one. My work is finished. And I will bring it to completion. So Satan, your circumstances, your sins, cannot affect the ministry of Jesus on your behalf. As one author said, any accuser, Satan, circumstances, or sins, they shrivel in stature alongside the risen Christ who is interceding for us at God's right hand. Isn't that a comfort for you? To know that Jesus is not sitting in the heavens twiddling His thumbs waiting for the end of times to come and and to remake this world and, and to bring about the new heavens and the new earth? No, He is at work. He's preparing a place, yes, but He's busy also interceding for you. That today you would believe and trust in Christ. That you would know the the love of His Spirit who's been poured out on you richly to cause you to obey and to, to trust Him. Jesus is busy at work interceding on our behalf. We see an example of that in John chapter 17. Turn with me briefly to John chapter 17 as we think about, and I'll just give you a a couple examples here, and then I'd I'd commend this passage to you for later to to read Jesus' prayer. How might Jesus be praying for you right now? This is a great example. We know how Jesus prays. John chapter 17. Starting in verse 13, he says, But now, as Jesus is praying to the Father, right before His his betrayal and His death, I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He's praying for our joy. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. But that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. How might Jesus be praying for you? What prayer request does he have on your behalf? Sanctify them in the truth. Make them holy. Make them effective. Sanctify them in, in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus lived a holy life so that you might live a holy life by His Spirit's help. But He doesn't offer to you a carefree life either. He prays for you. That as you suffer, as we are sent into the world, that you would be strengthened. Don't despise the suffering when it comes. Remember that Jesus has prayed for that very moment of rejection. That your faith would hold fast. And you wouldn't waver. When you're faced with temptation to lust or pride or envy or coveting or stealing or cheating, that Jesus has given you His Word that if you store it up in your heart, it will sanctify you for the moment of temptation. He prayed that His Word would be effective. And that's how He's praying for us now. Second, we see that Christ is loving us now, but secondly, we see... This love of Christ is effective. It produces the results that Christ intended. It is effective in protecting us from separation. Verses 35 and 39. What we see here as we turn back to Romans chapter 8. In verse 35 and 39 is that Jesus' love or God's love displayed through Jesus is effective. But who is it effective for? Who does it produce results for? For all people? Does God love all people universally in the ways that are being described in Romans chapter 8? Well, the answer has to be no. We know that there is common grace that God expresses to the world. In fact, in your sermon discussion guide, there's a reference, I believe, to Psalm 145 that describes how God gives food to all creatures. And we know that God provides rain for the whole earth. He even provides for the wicked what they eat and what they, where they will sleep. But this love, this protecting from separation love, is only for believers. God's love described in Romans 8 is a specific love for His people. That is those who, according to Romans 8.28, love God and are called by God according to His purpose. Those whom God has loved and drawn out of darkness and made His own, placed His Spirit within them and given them new life. This is a particular love. And this is the love, as we read in Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then scan down to verse 39. He describes that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the kind of love that Ephesians 5.25 talks about. The kind of love that Jesus expresses toward his people in a particular way, one that protects from separation or from removal from his love, from his care, is the love of Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. Great. Okay, thanks. Convicting. I need to love my wife tonight or today, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loves who? Who? The church. Christ loves the church. And he gave himself up for her. So who is the church? It is all of those who are believing in the finished work of Christ, the work of redemption. This is the love that Paul is describing here. It's Christ's love for the church, for his bride. Christ has a love for all, and he has a but he has a special saving preserving love for his bride, just as a husband has a particular love for his particular wife, and vice versa. And you know that you are a part of that bride. If you are in Christ, and Christ is loving you as his bride. And so we should never be ashamed to call ourselves part of the bride of Christ. To call ourselves a part of the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, we are necessarily identified as the family of God, the bride of Christ, if we say we are Christians. And that should be obvious to the world around us. So the love of Christ is effective in protecting us from separation because Christ loves His bride. He lays down His life for His bride. He is serving His bride. His love for His bride is not like my love for my bride, which is imperfect, infallible. It is imperfect, infallible, never-ending he is always living with his wife according to knowledge in an understanding way he is always doing what is best and right and good for his people anyone who trusts in christ can say i'm a part of his bride his church his called his chosen ones remember what romans 8:28 says that those who are part of the church are those that god has called He's called according to His purpose, His purposes of expressing His love towards sinners and displaying them for all eternity, for all the world in the new heavens and the new earth to see, as Ephesians says, to display the glories of His mercy. We can say, I'm a part of His bride. His called ones, His chosen ones, the ones who, according to Romans 8.35, are kept and protected forever, no matter what. So this morning, believer, you need to affirm that, reaffirm that in your heart and mind. Lord, I believe that You will keep me. You will protect me. And You have given me all of the resources that I need to obey and to live in light of what You have done and what You've accomplished I believe and help my unbelief. God will keep and protect forever no matter what. This love of Christ is effective in protecting us from separation. But what are the things that might try and separate us? What are these enemies? What are these adversaries that might seek to separate, to, to undo the tie, undo the knot that Christ's love? has from believer to God, the the bond that is there. Well, third, we need to see that this love does not spare us from the troubles of life or calamities in this life, but brings us safely through them to everlasting joy with God. This love doesn't spare us from brokenness, pain, but it delivers us through them. Verses 36 and 38 and 39. Look at what he says, starting in verse 35 again. Who shall separate us from this love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, verse 36, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But then he says in verse 38, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, height, or depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what kinds of things does Paul have in mind when he talks about calamities, things that might seek to separate us from the love of God in Christ Tribulations, distress, troubles, persecution. We could have a foreign nation in our country dropping bombs on our buildings, rolling tanks down our streets. That could happen. It could. Could that separate us from the love of Christ? Would that somehow signify that God has now removed His saving work from His people's lives? What about famine? What about not having enough money to clothe your children? Could that happen? Or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed. And Paul uh, quotes Psalm 44 in, in verse 36. It's a psalm of suffering in the life of God's people, probably in exile. And Paul makes the testimony of the psalmist his own. We are being killed. But the psalmist still knows that he belongs to the Lord. And so what Paul says is that death will happen to us, but it won't separate us. All of these things may happen to us. Death will happen to us, but it will not destroy us because of Christ's powerful work of love in the past and right now. And because of that, in the end, Paul says, we win. We win. In fact, Paul coins a a new phrase in Verse 37, look at what he says. In view of all of those things that might seek to separate us from the love of God in Christ, he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. He makes up a new word, Nikao. We are super conquerors, super conquerors. He made up a word to describe the, the kind of overwhelming victory that believers will experience in Christ through these sufferings. So, when Paul says in verse 35 and 39 that the sword or accusers or circumstances will not separate us from the love of Christ, he means, he means this Even if we are killed, we are not separated from the love of Christ. And that's what believers in Russia need right now. As I was FaceTiming with my friend in Russia, he said, Pray for us as believers, pray that even though we're likely to lose our jobs, he works for a government bank who threatened if you post anything on social media, you will be terminated immediately about the war happening right now in Ukraine. He said, pray for us that we would believe that this is what we've been made for. We've been built for this moment as a church to suffer for the glory of God. Pray for us. And even in the face of war and death, that we will not be separated from the love of Christ, that in fact we are experiencing the love of Christ right this second as He sustains us, as He sustains our faith. And so the sum of verses 35 to 39 is this. Jesus Christ right now is powerfully loving His people moment by moment with a love that does not always rescue us from disaster. It doesn't. That's what Americans love to believe. That we are somehow owed some carefree life without any pain, without any disaster. Without any hardships, without any suffering. That's what my generation thinks. But that is not what has been promised. But what has been promised is that, again, Christ is... Powerfully working with omnipotent power, moment by moment, with a love that doesn't rescue us from disaster, but protects us and preserves us for everlasting joy in His presence. Through suffering and through death. Now, I've not had any death threats I've not had anyone put a gun to my head and tell me to renounce my faith. But Paul is preparing us. He's preparing these believers to suffer. So, are we preparing ourselves to suffer? Maybe persecution like what the church in Ukraine is experiencing or the church in Russia is experiencing or the church in Congo is experiencing or around the world, and any other number of countries. Maybe that's not what we'll experience right now. But are we preparing our, our children to receive persecution in the workplace or in their schools by helping them see that Jesus will be faithful to His promise when they suffer, that if they will, if they will stick with Christ, if they will trust in Him and not let go and not waver, From Christ, that He will sustain them? Or are we padding their lives so much with the comforts and the pleasures of this life that when suffering comes, it will completely devastate their lives? Because we've sought to protect them from every little discomfort and not expose them to the real world and given them a view of eternity. That that pain is coming, but glory is also coming. I know I need to do that as a father. Now, Sometimes it can be difficult for us to comprehend these attributes of God. Some, something like Jesus is interceding for us right now. We can't see that. Now maybe you can close your eyes and picture that. That's a pretty glorious thought, isn't it? The Son of God, who is God himself, doing such a humiliating, humbling thing as interceding for sinners like us? And if the Father and the Son and the Spirit weren't in the same accord, you'd think the Father would be like, Jesus, do you know who these people are? Do you have any idea who you're asking for? But no, He lives to intercede for us. Remember that, that He is working and praying for you, for your perseverance and your endurance now. He is loving you in that way. Sometimes it's difficult for us to comprehend that. Or God loving us and caring for us when so many things seem to go wrong in our lives with pain and suffering and betrayal. Some of you are experiencing those very things in real time in in extreme ways right now. Physical pain, suffering, the prospect of, of, of a disease that may take your life. Some of you have been betrayed. Maybe you're thinking... I don't know if, I've, if I ever really have tasted the goodness and the love of God, or, or am I seeing that in any way right now? Listen to these words of one author. To you who say you've never tasted the love of God or the goodness of God, this is John Piper. He says, I say you have tasted many of its appetizers. Have you ever looked up at the sky? Have you ever been hugged by a friend? Have you ever sat in, the, in front of a warm fire? Have you ever walked in the woods or sat by the lake or lain in a summer hammock? Have you ever drunk your favorite drink on a hot day or eaten anything good? Every desire is either a devout or a distorted enticement to the glory of heaven. You say you haven't tasted God's love. I say you have tasted the appetizers. Go on to the meal. Go on to God Himself. And how we do that is by hearing the words of Jesus who says to His people, who says to strugglers and saints, He says, Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. Believer, are you laboring? Are you heavy laden? Are you burdened by your sin and by the struggle of life? And and you're struggling to grasp and to appreciate the ongoing work of Christ for you right now? Or to believe that it's true? He says, come to me. Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me and I am gentle and lowly. and And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you want to experience and know afresh the love and the care and the intercession and the comfort of God for you, come now to Christ, dear saint. Lay your burdens at his feet. Pour out your heart to him. Cry out to him for comfort and for a reminder of his goodness towards you. Remember the cross. Remember that Jesus knows your every prayer request and He is interceding for you. And be reminded in that that you can pour out your needs and your requests to other believers who will double up on those prayer requests. Come to Christ. Lay your burdens on Him. Trust Christ again. And for those who've never trusted Christ, come to Him The book of Romans tells us, as we heard last week, that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The wages of your living right now in in refusing to surrender to Christ as King is only going to pay death and condemnation Romans 8.1 does not apply to you if you are not hiding in Christ and have not come to Christ and confessed your sin to Him. There is condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. But if you will come to Him, He will save you. He will give you rest. He will forgive your sins. If you will confess that He is Lord and bow your knee to Him, He will draw near to you. But if you go on in your sin, if you refuse Him, His judgment lies upon you. And you don't know if today might be your last day. You don't know how many seconds or minutes or hours are left in your life. And the Scriptures tell us that it's appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. And the judgment, if you're not in Christ, will be one of guilty. The verdict will be guilty and there is no second chances. So turn to Christ. Come to Him whose arms are open wide to sinners. Come to Him. Confess that He is Lord and be saved. As we think about applying this text, brothers and sisters, Because this love of Christ as He is interceding for us and praying for us, ministering to us before His Father, this is for you. This is for Christians. This is a a comfort to you. This is a balm to your weary soul to know that Jesus lives. He's busy ministering for you. In all these things, that could seem to defeat God's people, circumstances or suffering or sin, God and His elect, whom He loves, remain inseparable now and forever. And this is God's love on display, and He will not let you go. And so how does that affect our lives together? Well, love, if we've experienced the love of God... Here's the first way, first thing to think about. That having experienced the love of God in Christ and in our salvation and knowing what He is doing for us right now, it fervently and sacrificially loves others in the church. That's what we're called to, to fervently love one another with zeal. And Because the gospel, it not only reveals or displays the love of God, but it prompts us to love each other as God loved us. And so do you see this love for the church in you? Do you? Examine yourself for for the practical fruits of love in this way. Do you love? I don't mean just in word and when you're on the street and go, oh yeah, I love Gold Country Baptist Church. It's a great church. It's a great church. Nice people there. Super friendly. I love that place. But do we have love that is expressing itself like Jesus, taking our cues from him, praying for one another, Sacrificing for one another. Showing up for one another when we're in need. When we know someone's discouraged. Let's excel in that. Here's another question. How has love cost you time and money and energy? John says, let us not love, in First John 3.18, let us not love in word, neither in speech, but in deed and in truth. In deed and in truth. Do our deeds and our expressions of love for one another show that we truly love like Christ? It costs us something. If you're too busy to love others in practical ways, it's probably going to cost you something. It might cost you your video games. It might cost you your hobbies. It might cost you a little less vacationing. It might cost you saving for whatever it is that you're saving for, that keeps you from giving to gospel work in the life of the church. Love is costly, but it is worth it. And that's what Paul exemplified for us, didn't he? But also, and lastly, let's worship God for his love. And that's exactly what we're going to do in the Lord's table this morning. We're going to worship God for his love for us in Christ. This was Moses' response in Exodus 34 when he experienced the love of God. After after seeing God's glory displayed, he immediately, it says, Moses bowed his head to the earth and he worshipped. That's what we must do in in view of the, the love of God poured out for us. Psalm 100, verse 4 and 5 says, Give thanks to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations.